you guys. Good morning. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we we have been bombarded again this week with news of a world that is fallen and a world that is evil. And so God, many of the things that we felt are important may no longer be as important based on things that are occurring in this world now. And so, God, I, I do pray that you would be in this, this house that is yours. This church belongs to you. We have sung hymns to you today, and one hymn even called for us as your children, your Christians, your people, to stand firm in the faith as soldiers of the cross. God, I, I do not wish for us to be here today in fear. And I pray, God, that you would keep us from it. Yet we must also be re, uh, real and be aware of, of the evil in our world and the circumstances that are facing us. And so, God, I pray that as, as you take us through your word today, that you would show us from your word how, how you address this reality we call combat and war and, and struggle and fighting how you address this in your word is how we must think of it. And so, God, I pray that you would cause us to be, be attentive to your word, that you would cause us to be uh, turning to you and depending upon you in faith as your word calls us to. But, God, I pray this morning that this time would be for you and that you would challenge us as your people to be the light of Christ in this dark, dark world, especially during this time. Lord, let this time be for you. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, I wish to divert a little bit away from our exegesis of Matthew's gospel to spend some time reflecting on a biblical way of the world events from this week. Now, I don't want this to be a time of doom and gloom and weightiness but as we gathered this past Wednesday for prayer and Bible study, while we were here, Vladimir Putin ordered his Russian forces to begin the air and ground invasion of the sovereign nation of Ukraine. When I arrived at home, that was on, it, it was all over the news. It had already occurred. Many of us may have listened to and watched the news reports late into the night. I did. I spent much of the latter half of this week, Thursday and Friday and Saturday, in prayer and reflection upon the state of war that our world is now in. And I say these words not to cause us to be in fear, but just to be sober and wake up to the reality that our world is now different. This invasion of Ukraine is the largest military attack in Europe since World War II. That is something we must be aware of. This is not a minor incident. It is only the beginning of a larger world struggle that I am afraid will define the face of our world order as we know it now. This news of war is not to be taken lightly. This war is much weightier than the petty news stories that make up most of our 24-hour news cycle. And let's just be real. I mean, 24-hour news has to be filled up with something, and most of the time it's petty. Yet, I don't think the news of this week is petty. Even the viral video reality of social media is consumed with footage from Ukraine 
My son Josiah, with his cell phone, was at home this week showing us, look what's on the, look, look what's on my phone. And I mean, so the younger generation is seeing this from a viral video perspective. It's a different way of seeing things. Images of the horror of human misery and the devastation of cities are real. The emotions that come with it are real. This is not something that is a show. One thing that stood out to me this week as I listened to the broadcasts and the political news briefings was this repeated use of a phrase, our thoughts are with the Ukrainian people. I heard that often. The news anchors would say this, our thoughts are with the Ukrainian people. The political news briefings would say, our thoughts are with the Ukrainian people. Our thoughts. The secular world is thinking about the loved ones, the friends, and even total strangers who are suffering right now at the hands of Russia, of the Russian oligarch who is set on destroying their country. But how does the church respond to the events of this past week? How does the church, full of God's people, full of God's grace, full of the Spirit of Christ, how do we respond to the reality of war? Do we merely think about the misery of the innocents? Do are, are our thoughts all that we can give to those who are suffering and grieving? We do not merely keep the suffering and innocence in our thoughts. We pray. We call upon God to intervene on behalf of the innocents who are suffering today from the destruction that combat brings and this invasion force that is bent on destroying the world as we know it. We pray. We don't just think. We just don't share our thoughts. We do not express our that we are thinking about you. We pray for you. But I believe that we can also do much more in a practical Christianity. I think we're called by God to be a part of a world while we are still to be in his kingdom. We are part of a fallen world, yet we are also part of a heavenly kingdom. A kingdom that is alive and active in a fallen world that is full of evil and war and death and destruction. We're called to pray. We're also expected to live out this life, the truth that God gives us to respond to a suffering world. Today, I want to walk through several passages of Scripture concerning God's people and God's approach to war. This is why we don't have one passage today to do an exegesis through. Uh, it's going to be a, a scattershot through the Scriptures because of the time limit we have. Um, but if you wish to take notes, there's a place in your bulletin. You can jot down these passages of Scripture if you wish. And I'm not even going to, I'm just barely scratching the surface today on what Scripture says about war. As the secular-minded world can only think about the misery of war, we Christians can and we should act in Christ-like ways in the midst of it. That's what I want us to ponder today. This is important because it's obvious that the actions of Russia this week are only the beginning of a new world conflict, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we will face much more devastation of, of, of countries and even of economies in the coming months and even though probably over the next years or so. I think it's coming. It's here. This invasion has set off a chain of events that we can only now speculate about what will happen. And it is just speculation at this point. We don't know what's coming, but we do not live in fear of it. We do not go and cower out of terror of it. Yet the reality is something we must pay attention to. There are deeper economic and safety issues that are going to be facing us, not just here in this country, but all around the world right now. What's happening this week is going to have a ripple effect. So where does war come from? Again, just if you wish to jot these passages down, you, I mean, you may, but let me just kind of go through a few. Where, where is, where does war come from? What is war? On Wednesday nights, we are going through the book of James initially as a setup to something later this summer. I, I pray that we can transition from the book of James into some thinking about Christian worldview, which I think is timely. 
And James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 tells us where war comes from. What is it? Here's what James tells us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's the source of conflict when we don't get what we want. That's it. The source of our conflict between us is we don't get what we want. Now, that, that, that applies to nations that go to war. It also applies in the home when husbands and wives are at war. We don't get what we want. Even when teenagers war against their parents, it's because they don't get what they want. That's the source of it. That's the source of human tension. But the beginning of war in human history is seen, I think, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, with the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Here we begin in Genesis 4, verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And we know that Cain eventually kills his brother and hides the sin. That was war. But war continued with the descendants of Cain. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, tells us of the descendants of Cain that continued in violence and hatred toward one another. It's the descendant of Lamech, though, that I want us to remember as a symbol of war and violence among men. Verse 23 reads this, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zala, or Zila, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What's happening in this, that, that brief little blurb of, of human history, the descendants of Cain, this is retaliation that is becoming a repeated cycle. And as retaliation repeats in human history, it gets worse and worse and more intense and more personal and more violent. War among men increases because Lamech, he killed a man because he wounded him. He killed a young man for striking him. The descendants of Cain are at war. Violence for not getting what we want. And what is it that Lamech was needing here? Number, I mean, I, I think clearly... He wanted justice. His pride was hurt. Someone hurt him. Someone struck him, so he killed him dead. That's, that's the beginning of all of this. Sinful. Sin came into the world through the first man and the first woman. And then Cain, one of their descendants, kills a brother. And all of the descendants of Cain continue this cycle. And it has done nothing but magnify and magnify and magnify even till today. Now, patriarchs of the Old Testament, we read that all of, a lot of the Old Testament. We, we read a lot about war in the Old Testament. The ancient Near East of the ancient period, they saw war as sacred. It was a sacred undertaking. Uh, the idea of holy war was very common in the ancient world. All of the, the nations that surrounded Israel, and Israel was a part of this time, and a part of this culture, and a part of this thinking, holy war. It, war was a sacred thing because when you went to war, you were defending the honor and the power of your deity, of your God. That's how it started in the ancient thinking. 
Think also as well, as Israel was established, as God establishes his people in the promised land, and he establishes them as his his witness into this fallen world, Israel saw war intimately involving the transcendent power of God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Not to mention that the geographic location of Israel then and now necessitated a posture for military defense. When your enemies surround you, you better be ready. That Israel's take on holy war was not that they were defending the honor and power of a false god. They were actually going to war because of the power of the one true God, the one true creator of the heaven and the earth, because they were established as a nation, as a people by this God, as a light to a fallen world full of battle from the descendants of Cain. Even in the Old Testament, we see the imagery of war a lot. In in Numbers chapter 21 and in 1 Samuel chapter 18, God is called, or these wars are called wars of the Lord. These battles that Israel undertake, these were not just battles for uh, economic prosperity and political gain. It was wars of the Lord. Even in, in the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, many of David's Psalms uh, reference and use the language of battle and war. God is mighty in battle, according to Psalm 24. Also, God is the Lord of hosts. You ever heard, read that in the scriptures? Well, who are the hosts? The host, that's an angel army. God is the Lord of angel armies, according to uh, Peterson's message translation. If you have that on your bookshelf somewhere. Um, we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 17 in many of the Psalms. God is the Lord of hosts, and God is the God of the armies of Israel. Also, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God sets out the code of conduct in war. So it's not something that is, that is just recent. It's been around for the beginning of human history, and God, even with his history of his people, Israel, as he establishes the Mosaic covenants, as he establishes his covenant with us, in the beginning, in Deuteronomy, in the Mosaic order, God sets out codes of conduct. How do you conduct war? Patriarchs of the Old Testament, they fought bravely to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth because they were God's people. God commanded them to do this. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11, chapter, uh, verses 32 to 34. And what more shall I say? Talking about the patriarchs of old. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. Talking about the heroes of the faith. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel and the prophets, verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So the language of war is all throughout the Old Testament, and even Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of the Old Testament patriarchs, They were called to this kind of conflict and battle as God uses them to fight against the evil of this world. It's there. Following along in the Old Testament, God did not allow David the king to build a house to him, the Lord, because David was a man of war. God allowed that privilege to go to David's son, Solomon. Albeit David was a mighty warrior, a soldier, a mighty leader, God would not allow this privilege to be his. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man of valor, a man of good presence, because God was with him, as David and his mighty his mighty stories was because God was with him and God directed him. That's why he became a mighty military leader. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 18 says this, as they, as Saul, King Saul was looking for someone to play the flute or play the lyre for him. Someone comes to him in 1 Samuel 16 speaking of David. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. 
So even in the Old Testament ways of speaking about war in this context, any man who had this type of uh, skill was also seen as someone with honor and integrity because they were fighting for God as God directed. But now in the New Testament, we have to take a, a look at how the New Testament speaks of war and as and how, how the church under the spirit of Christ now looks at it. It's a little bit different now. In the Old Testament time of human history, things were, I mean, war was just common. War was a way of life because that was it. You were, I mean, war was expected. There really was never a satisfied peace. We only see peace as we think of peace in the 20th century following the world wars. But then you have to ask how peaceful is it because it was very fragile. Yet there was a global idea. There was a global sense of peace. There has been. And I would argue it's because of Christian principles. Well, let's take a look in the New Testament, the language of war there. The Apostle Paul, when he defends his ministry against false teachers who accuse him, he writes to the church in Corinth with military language. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, here's what Paul says. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Notice he's starting off this military language with these words. My, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your di obedience is complete. Language of war. But notice here in Paul's speaking, as he's talking about war, he says we do not, as Christians, wage war according to the flesh. We're waging war according to divine power. To destroy what? Evil strongholds in the world. We destroy arguments, he says. And by being obedient to Christ, every evil thought, every evil action faces a punishment because of disobedience. This idea of punishment is important in our biblical understanding of war. This language of war all throughout the scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the language of war is that of judgment. When we think of war in scripture, it is God passing judgment. And as Paul speaks here to the church in Corinth, that's what he's speaking about. This war of the flesh is one thing, but... Paul says we are warring against spiritual issues and it's God's judgment upon a fallen evil world. That's why we have to think about this as Christians. When we think about war in Scripture, we're thinking about God and His judgment. Further, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 2, two verses, verse 8 and verse 15. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Again, language of captivity. That's a military term, captive. Verse 15 he says, speaking of Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the language of disarming, of authority, of triumph, these are military terms. But from a, sp a spiritual perspective, we're seeing how God is, th is, is conducting war in, in a fallen world, a spiritual war in a fallen world. That's how the scriptures help us see these things. One thing to remember from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, this helps us understand how does Jesus think about war even in his time? Now, when we think about Jesus, and we rightly do, Jesus was not a man of war. He was a man of, he was a man of conviction. 
He was a man of firm teaching. He was a man, uh, a, a God man who was there to bring peace, but also division. But here's how, uh, when Jesus confronts the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, he does not force or, or expect the Roman centurion to abandon his military connections. Notice this, a man of war, a Roman centurion stationed in Capernaum where Jesus heals the servant of this Roman soldier. He, can, he commends this soldier for his faith, but he, Jesus does not expect him to leave his place of military combat. Here's what it says in, in Matthew chapter 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This Roman centurion understood the authority of Christ as this Roman centurion understood authority as he served in the military structures. Authority in the scriptures is an important element here when we're thinking about war, especially when we're thinking about God's sovereignty over all things in our human world. This passage and many more throughout the Bible, they help us see the Christian way of thinking about war. If you're writing down anything today, if you want to write down this statement, this is something that we need to think about. War is not a necessary thing but it is an inevitable thing. As long as we are in this fallen state that we are in, war inevitably will come. No matter how long peace is, peace in this fallen world will not last until God himself establishes his final kingdom and his son Jesus Christ reigns forever. That's the only time we'll see eternal peace. So in this fallen world, war is not a necessary thing, but it is an inevitable thing because that is what sin eventually leads to. The fall of man from God's original design of harmony. Remember, as God created Adam and Eve, he created man and woman to live in harmony with him. In harmony with a created order that was idyllic and paradise, and perfect. And what broke that? Us, our sinful choices, our sinful thoughts, our sinful actions toward one another and toward God. That broke the harmony of God's original design. So the fall of man ushered in the evil of this world and the destruction of God's created order. All of this will inevitably result in war. It's a natural outcome. That's why we have war. Yet, yet, God speaks in the language of war as if he's taking back his creation. Notice that. All throughout scripture, every time we see the beauty of God redeeming this fallen world and taking it back for his own, he's using the language of war. Only God has the righteous, uh, he has the right to do that. So this end-time view of Christ's return even uses the language of war. In Matthew chapter 24, Christ's return, he speaks about the language of war. If you want to turn there, Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about the final judgment of the sheep and the goats, beginning in verse 29, he speaks to the faithful. Let's begin in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Imagine verse 31, that's an image of a war council <laughs> passing judgment. War crimes are now being judged at the end times. Because the angels, what did we say the angels represented? 
an army, <laughs> God's heavenly army. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, verse 32. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did you see, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Folks. I'm sorry, that was Matthew 25. I told you the wrong chapter. Matthew 25. Some of y'all caught that, but you were kind. That's how I think we are to behave as Christians in a fallen world. That's how we are to act as Christ amidst war. We feed the hungry. We clothe the naked. We give water to the thirsty. We visit the imprisoned. We express the image of Christ amidst the evil that is around us. Now, in Matthew 24, we do want to see some image of, of war as well. Well, flip over there. Matthew 24, beginning verse 29, Jesus speaking of his return. Again, language of war. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29, I want to say that again. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, now, now Chad back there is grinning ear to ear. Uh, I'm not here to say whether I'm pre-trib, post-trib, or, or all-millennial, whatever it is. I'm just saying I'm reading Scripture. I'm going to let Jesus' words speak the truth. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the scribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is language of a triumphant army arriving. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Y'all figure out if that's post-trib, pre-trib, or millennial. I'm not getting into that today. It says what it says after the tribulation. There we go. Now some of y'all are going to have me out in a council somewhere and tell me how wrong I am. But the fall of man here, let's just think about it. How, how does this, I mean, how does this, Jesus in the New Testament speaks with language of war in an end time perspective. The end time is a war that's coming. It says if God is, and his son Jesus Christ, they're here to take back what an enemy took. Now, now, the New Testament is an obvious place to begin when discussing how Christians should think about the ways of the world in which we live, yet the New Testament has very little to say on how we react to war. We can only derive principles of how we react to it rather than a specific order of precepts to follow, commands. How we apply these principles... I think, must be assessed in the time in which we live and the circumstances that lie before us. How do Christians respond to war? Are we justified in fighting in war? Are we called to be pacifists as Jesus did not call for a war to establish his kingdom? There's different ways of thinking about this. Let's walk through this quickly. A brief understanding of how New Testament principles concerning conflict in war I think can be seen in how the church has dealt with this in the past. There is the idea of being a pacifist, pacifism, which I think has a place. I mean, Jesus did not fight back against those who were crucifying him. He was passive. 
And so many in the church, and I think there is a place for this, we should behave likewise as pacifists when it comes to conflict. The church abstains from any role of war for about the first 300 years of the church. Yet, as I said, I think the times and the circumstances have to help us think through what we do. It was the first 300 of the years of the church that the church was basically underground. The church didn't really have territory, which I think the first 300 years of the church were one of the greatest times of the church as it flourished because it wasn't bogged down with budgets and economies and militaries and government. (laughs) Yet when Constantine comes on the scene, the era of Constantine, he ushered in a Christian state that we call Christendom. When he does this, he establishes a state authority within the church. Notice authority is always an idea when it comes to war. This changes the position of the church. The threat of barbarian invasion at the time, uh, during the 4th and the 5th centuries, barbarians were invading the now Roman Christian empire. That caused them to rethink pacifism. And thinkers like Augustine, comes. he thinks about, is war just now? And so the first time we see just war theory was because of the invasion of the barbarians into the Roman Christian Empire. Just war theory is the next way to respond to this. And again, this is first articulated by Augustine. If you wish to read his large tome called The City of God, you may do that. It's in there. But also later in the medieval period, uh, Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, he he articulates a just war theory. Christians began to consider a moral position for war, whereas the first centuries of the church, we had nothing to do with war. We were pacifists. If war must come, according to just war theory, the church or the state can never be the aggressor simply for invasion over a sovereign people. The objective in just war theory must be to vindicate justice and to restore peace. It's the only time in church thinking that we can defend ourselves and establish peace. That's just war theory. The just war must be fought under the authority of the state and must observe a code of good faith and human dignity. You cannot just run out and do war because you want to. There must be an established order and authority to do the just and right thing. That's just war theory. Now, In this, as Christians, if we are involved in any of this, the Christian must center their thoughts and their actions around love for others and for their well-being. That's central to just war theory. Thirdly, there is a way that Christians have thought about war and reacted to war. Again, we have pacifism, we have just war theory, and then, then came the Crusades, the idea of crusade. The Crusades of the Middle Ages, they adapted the moral standards of just war. Again, all of this goes back to ethics and morality. Are we justified morally in doing this? The idea of the Crusade took just war theory and took it a bit further, and it included the moral obligation to fight for an ideal. Not fighting for territory, not fighting to liberate, not fighting to care for those who are oppressed, but now we're fighting for an ideal. What was that ideal? According to the Crusaders, the authority of God commands Christians to fight for the ideal of the Christian faith. The Crusades or holy wars were fought under the idea that the church or some inspired religious leader was leading the battle. Not on behalf of justice or on behalf of life or property, but on behalf of an idea. That's the idea of crusade. So again, we have pacifism, we have just war, we have crusade. But how does the church think about the morality of war or the moral reaction to war? I think the technology and the weapons of war that have adapted and changed, they change the dynamic of war. And so we always have to, we have to continue to be thinking about this and praying about this. During the Reformation that ushered in the Protestant churches that we're now a part of, the Reformation And the churches that came out of it actually came out of a religious war. Were they justified? 
From this came the three positions that we talked about again. Passivism, just war and crusade. Just war um, uh, was the thinking amongst the Lutherans and the Anglicans. Many in the Reformed Church took on the idea of the crusade. We're out to fight the battle of the idea. But then amongst the Anabaptists and then later the Quakers, there was the idea of pacifism. The church has no role in war. See where we're at? Let's wrap this up. By the 19th century, relative peace actually dominated the minds of Western Christianity and it resulted in a renewed call for pacifism and the elimination of all war. Yet what happens in the early 20th century? (laughs) The idea of crusade actually was the position for World War I. We're going on a crusade. We're battling for the idea. Passivism actually took place between World War I and World War II. Those decades between the World War I and World War II, there was a, a worldwide embrace of pacifism. We don't want any more war. Yet then World War II comes along and just war theory now was the reigning for why do we go and take care of Hitler and, and the Japanese Empire. So where are we today as another global world war seems possible? I think we have to ask ourselves how we stand for peace while also standing against unjust evil and aggression. There has to be a harmony of how we're thinking and praying about this. How do we stand for peace above all while still standing against evil and aggression? So I'm I'm arguing for a maybe a, a, a blending of pacifism and just war theory here. I don't think we can stand by and allow the Christian worldview to be annihilated by evil. We can't. We can't allow evil to crush the Christian way of living and thinking because God has established His church for a reason. And we do not sit back passively and allow evil to walk all over that. I do not think we can uh, stand by and allow the innocents who suffer needlessly in war to suffer. The church is called to be God. I think the church is called by God to be his kingdom in a fallen world. We are called to be God's people, his kingdom in a sinful fallen world. If the world is falling apart, if evil is oppressing us all, then the church stands to lend aid to the suffering, to care for the refugee. And when needed, I think we we defend against the aggressor. That's hard to hear. But what can we do as a church? A state of war is here, folks. I don't know how long it's going to, I don't know if it's going to be a short-lived thing. I don't know if it's going to be a long-term thing. But many of us in this room, we've been preparing for such a time as this by stockpiling. We've got folks who are now preppers living out in bunkers. They've been thinking about this for a long time in the church. I don't know, are they right? I don't know, are they wrong? I don't think that this invasion by Russia will end tomorrow. And I'm convinced that a wave of troubles that actually began under the disruption of COVID-19 is now amplified by the war that's here. So here's how, how, how do we do this? I mean, number one, peace. We, we must pray for peace. We must strive for peace. God ushers in peace in His Son, Jesus Christ. How do we do this? In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, Paul tells us, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Folks, as Christ has redeemed us as a military conflict of spiritual battle by redeeming us away from the power of Satan and sin, we too stand and we walk as the Lord does. In meekness, in kindness, in gentleness, in self-control, Yet we stand in faith. Faith. We have, we trust, we have faith that our God is in control of all things. Amen? I think that we are, we should as the church prepare to help others. That's the, that's the, that's the example in the New Testament. God's people, the church, they took care of those in need. 
It was, it was a, a radical idea in human history that, that somebody would actually have compassion on someone else without expecting something in return. That was a radical idea that Jesus ushered into the world. And the church lived it. I think we can do the same. We should do the same. It's been that way all throughout his, the church history. It is the church that helps those in need. We give water to those who are thirsty. We give food to those who are hungry. We give shelter to those in need. We give friendship to those who have none. We give mercy. We give aid. We give kindness. We show faith. That's how we live in this time. How do we prepare to help others? I think, folks, if you have not... If you don't have a stock of food, I would encourage you to go do so. I'm not saying this out of fear and trembling and anxiety, but many in this church already know you've got more food than a food line down the street. you got more food in your house than Kroger. Okay, you're good. Don't hoard. If you've already got it, don't hoard. You got it. You're good. Now start helping people. But if you've not prepared, now's a great time to go do it. But I think food prices are going to continue to go up. I think it's, I think the uh, the stocks are going to de- de- decline. I think also in order to be able to help others, if any of us in this room have any kind of debt, that's going to limit how much you can help somebody if they need it. If you have debt, I encourage you eliminate it. If we must help others, our dollars are necessary. I think we need to prepare for increased prices. Inflation is already here. I don't think it's going to go down. I think everything that's happening is going to continue to inflate this. Cash is important. If you have no cash, get some cash. I'm not saying any of this out of fear, but this is just common sense and practicality, okay? Because if we're going to be God's people, we have to help people. We have to be prepared to help people. I think we have to be prepared to take in refugees. We were contacted by Samaritan's Purse a little while back, that Afghan... Do you realize, forgetting the news cycle, do you realize that there are Afghan refugees that are here in the United States that have nowhere to go? We've forgotten about them, haven't we? We have Afghan Christians in this country right now sitting on military bases who cannot go anywhere because there is no one to sponsor them. I think we're going to see more and more of that as world struggles and strife continue. I think we as a church need to think and pray about how do we take care of that. Lastly, and this is not a scare tactic, but it's a reality. This type of war that is now upon us is different. We are going to have to prepare for cyber attacks on our infrastructure. I know many in this room, you live on the Internet. Let me challenge you to either get off of it or change your passwords today. Cyber attacks are here. Another reason to have cash and be prepared, because if you can't get to your money and there's a cyber attack, you're not going to be able to help anyone. Let's be prepared. I think that both a bit of seeking peace and and, and avoiding war must harmonize with a bit of just war theory here. I think it's, it's a moral and it's a moral obligation for us to help others to stand up against evil. I think it's a moral obligation for us to avoid all evil and to seek peace. Because peace is the central element of our Christian response. And where, how does that? God initiates this peace that we know. God initiates this peace and sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Because peace with a rebellious, sinful, fallen world is what God initiated. That's how we think about it. Now, many of you are sitting there staring at me. Pastor Bryant, you've never preached this way before. Forgive me. But these last few days I've been in, in prayer and pondering and thinking and I'm not here to say that go home tomorrow and put your head in the sand and go live in your basement and get out your M16 and get ready for the Russians to invade. That's that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know that the Russians are going to invade our country. I don't see it's going to go that far, but disruption is here. How do we as the church live through that? How do we show Christ in that? If we're not ready in our own homes and in our own church body, we're not ready to help people. That's what I want us to ponder and consider. Amen? Nathan, come on forward. Again, we don't live in fear. We have a God who is stronger than Vladimir Putin. Amen. <laughs> we serve a God who is bigger than all of this. Yet, at the same time, we know that this, this state of war that our, that our world is now facing is a state that is inevitable. Even, if, if, even when we get through this, and I'm not saying if, when we get through this, whenever that is, It's going to come up again. 
because of the state of sinful man. How do we as the church live in that? How do we serve in that? Amen? We respond not by thinking about others. How do we do? We pray for others. Amen? And then let's figure out how practically we can help. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We we live in a broken and fallen world, dear God. We, we live in a time that is uncertain. Not a time of fear, not a time of anxiety, but a time of, of awakening and a time of, of reality that, that we live in a world that's not safe. I first, Lord, pray for those in Ukraine right now and around the world right now not, that, that are suffering at the hands of, of oppression, uh, of those military might that are crushing lives and crushing communities and destroying things. Lord, that is not of you. And I pray for those who are in suffering and in turmoil right now. Lord, I pray for those who are standing up against evil. I pray, God, that you would give them strength and you would give them courage, that you would give them all that they need to stand firm and to protect their families and to protect what is needs to be protected. Lord, I pray that you would just hear us and, and, and we pray for you to hear us. We pray for those who need you. We pray for us as we need you. Lord, help us to help others. But lastly, dear God, I pray that you would not allow us to sink into a despair and fear. I pray, God, that you would give us boldness and courage to stand firm for the truth of the gospel, to give kindness and compassion to those who need it so that they see that there is a truth, a peace that is possible beyond human comprehension that only, dear God, you have given. And Lord, that is, you've given that to us to give to others. And so, God, I pray for your strength in that for us, that we can show compassion and mercy and kindness toward others. Lord, we need you, and I pray, God, that during this time you would draw all men and all women to trust you and draw them in faith to you. Lord, war is inevitable in this sinful, fallen world we're in, and even the last time of your final triumph will be a battle, a spiritual battle that you win and you take back what is rightly yours, and Lord, we stand with you as your people, and we pray, dear God, that you would triumph and that you would have glory. But Lord, as as we depart from here, Lord, I pray that you would give us your strength, your, your joy, your peace. Give us confidence that we are in your hands. And dear God, show us your mighty, your mighty grace. Show us your mighty love. Show us your mighty power in the midst of all of this so that we can worship you even more. We ask all this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.